a prior podcast of, about reading Thoreau. We had read all, in prior podcasts, we read all of 1851, which was quite a year for Thoreau. There was a lot of interesting nuggets uh, in that year in the journals. So now on January 12th of 2020, we're going to read 1852. So we're starting in January 7th on January 12th here, on 1852. The noted newspaper editor, Horace Greeley, appointed himself Thoreau's unofficial literary agent. His efforts failed to result in any publications in 1852, but were better rewarded later on. Meanwhile, if Thoreau's life could ever be said to settle into a routine, this was the year it did so. His walking, his lecturing, his surveying, and his writing all continued. By now, his self-training as a writer was showing its full effect. He wrote easily, copiously, and often very well indeed. The journal includes passages of description that are better than anyone else has penned. Whoa. Do you think practice, like writing in your journal, makes perfection? <laughs> Frequent writing makes you a better writer? Hmm. Hmm. I would think you need content to write. But Horace Greeley, we had said that his trip to New York was somewhat of a boondoggle, but in reality he had met Horace Greeley. So it wasn't a complete waste of time. January 7th, this afternoon. In dells of the wood and on the lee side of the woods, where the wind has not disturbed it, the snow still lies on the trees as richly as I ever saw it. It was just moist enough to stick. The pitch pines wear it best. The plumes hang down like the feathers of the ostrich or the tail of the cassowary, so purely white. I am sorry that I cannot say snowy white, for in purity it is like nothing but itself. From contrast with the dark needles and stems of the trees whiter than ever on the ground, even the bare apple tree limbs and twigs in the hollows support each a little ridge of snow, a collar of snow, five or six inches high. The trees are bent under the weight into a great variety of postures, arches. Their branches and tops are so consolidated by the burden of snow, and they stand in such new attitudes. The tops, often like canopies of parasols, agglomerated that they remind me of the pictures of palms and other oriental trees. January 11th. We sometimes find ourselves living fast, unprofitably and coarsely even, as we catch ourselves eating our meals in an accountable haste. Do we do that? We don't often do it, but other people do. 
But in one sense, we cannot live too leisurely. Let us not live as if time was short. Catch the pace of the seasons, have leisure to attend to every phenomenon of nature and to entertain every thought that comes to you. Let your life be a leisurely progress through the realms of nature, even in guest quarters. Here I am, January 13, here I am on the cliffs at half past three or four o'clock. The snow more than a foot deep over all the land. Few, if any, leave the beaten paths. A few clouds are floating overhead, downy and dark. Clear sky and bright sun, and yet no redness. Remarkable, yet admirable admiration that this should be confined to the morning and evening. Greeks were they who did it. Hmm. Oh, a mother, oh, pearl tint is the utmost they will give you at midday, and this but rarely. Singular enough, thirty, twenty minutes later, looking up, I saw a long, light-textured cloud stretching from north to south with a dunnish mass and an enlightened border with its under edge towards the west, all beautiful mother of pearl, as remarkable as a rainbow. Stretching over half the heavens, and underneath it in the west were flitting mother-of-pearl clouds, which change their loose textured form and melt rapidly away, never any so fast, even while I write. Remember when we saw the cloud bows? <laughs> Did we see rainbows in the clouds? Like cloud bows? <laughs> mm-hmm. Before I can complete this sentence, I look up and they are gone, like smoke or rather the steam from the engine in the winter air, even a considerable cloud, like a fabulous Atlantis or unfortunate isle in the Hesperian Sea is dissolved and dispersed in a minute or two, and nothing is left but the pure either. Then another comes by magic, is born out of the pure blue imperium with beautiful mother-of-pearl tints, where not a shred of vapor was to be seen before, not enough to stain a glass or polished steel blade. It grows more light and porous, the deep blue deeps are seen through it here and there, only a few flocks are left. And now these two have disappeared, and no one knows whether it is gone. You are compelled to look at the sky, for the earth is invisible. You think we should just go out and stare at the clouds? <laughs> hmm? Just watch clouds go by. <laughs> January 15th. We have heard a deal about English comfort. But may you not trace these stories home to some wealthy Sardanapalus who was able to pay for obsequious attendance and for every luxury. How far does it describe merely the tax 
much and selfishness of the wealthy class. Ask the great mass of Englishmen and travelers whose vote alone is conclusive concerning the comfort they enjoyed in second and third class accommodations in steamboats and railroads and eating and lodging houses. Word, somebody or other may have made himself comfortable, but the very style of his living makes it necessary that the great majority of his countrymen should be uncomfortable. Hmm. January 17th, the other day, the 14th, as I was passing the further Garfield house, Beyond Holden's, uh, with my pantaloons as usual, tucked into my boots, there was no path beyond Holden's. I heard some persons in Garfield's shed, but did not look around, and when I had got a rod or two beyond, I heard someone call out imprudently from the shed quite loud, something like, Hola, oh, hola, oh, mister. Oh, Holo, what do you think of the walkin'? I turned around directly and saw three men standing in the shed. I was resolved to discomfort them. But they should prove their manhood if they had any and find something to say, though they had nothing before, that they should make amends to the universe by feeling cheap. They should either say to my face and I what they had said to my back or they should feel the meaning meanness of having to change the tone. So I called out, looking at one, quote, Do you speak to me, sir? No answer. So I stepped a little nearer and repeated the question, when one replied, Yes, sir. So I advanced with alacrity up the path they had shoveled. In the meanwhile, one ran into the house. I thought I had seen the nearest one before. He called me by name faintly and with hesitation and held out his hand half unconsciously, which I did not decline, and I inquired gravely if he wished to say anything to me. He could only wave me to the other and mutter, My brother. I approached him and repeated the question. He looked as if he was shrinking into a nutshell, the pitiable object he was. He looked away from me while he began to frame some business, some surveying that he might wish to have done. I saw that he was drunk, that his brother was ashamed of him, and I turned my back on him in the outset of this indirect but drunken apology. It appeared to me that at a very early age the mind of man, perhaps at the same time with his body, ceases to be elastic. It appears to me that at a very early age the mind of man, perhaps at the same time with his body, ceases to be elastic. His intellectual power becomes something defined and limited. He does not think expansively as he would stretch himself in his growing days. What was flexible sap hardens into heartwood and there is no further change. In the season of youth, methinks, man is incapable of intellectual effort and performance which surpasses all rules and bounds as the youth lies out his whole strength 
without fear of prudence and does not feel his limits. It is the transition from poetry to prose. The young man can run and leap. He has not learned exactly how far he knows no limits. The grown man does not exceed his daily labor. He has no strength to waste. January 20th. We're reading in January. January 20th. The farmers nowadays can cart out peat and muck over the frozen meadows, uh, somewhat analogous, methinks the scholar does, drives in with tight-braced energy and winter cheer onto his now firm meadowy grounds and carts, uh, hauls off the virgin loads of fertilizing soil, which he drew up in the warm, soft summer. Do you feel that we're hauling off uh, cart loads of Henry David Thoreau in the middle of winter into our, as uh, our intellectual scholarly mucking, we're mucking and digging out peat muck, peat out of the ground of Henry David Thoreau's journal. <laughs> we now bring our muck out of the meadows, but it was thrown up first in summer. The scholars and the farmers' work are strictly analogous, easily, easily now. The farmer, the scholars, and the farmers work easily now. He now conveys, sliding over the snow-clad ground, great loads of fuel and of lumber, which have grown in many summers from the forest to the town. He deals with the dry hay and cows, spoils of summer meads and fields stored in his barns, doling it out from day to day, and manufactures milk for men. When I see the farmer driving into his barnyard with a load of muck, whose blackness contrasts strangely with the white snow, I have the thoughts which I have described. He is doing like myself. My barnyard is my journal. <laughs> Interesting. So this is kind of meant for farmers in a way. <laughs> Do you think that reading his journal is like being a farmer? And do you think being a poet and a philosopher is sort of like manufacturing milk for men? My barnyard is my journal. That could be the theme for today. January 21. I never realized so distinctly as this moment that I am peacefully parting company with the best friend I ever had, for each pursuing his proper path. I perceive that it is possible that we may have a better understanding. Hmm. Now then, when we were more at one, now not expecting such essential agreement as before, simply our paths diverge. January 24th. I see in the woods the woodman's embers, which have melted a circular hole in the snow. 
where he warms his coffee at noon. But these days the fire does not melt the snow over a space three feet across. These woods, why do I not feel they're being cut more sorely, sorely? Does it not affect me nearly? The axe can deprive me of much. Concord is sheared of its pride. I am certainly the less attached to my native town in consequence. One and a main link is broken. I shall go to Walden less frequently. He's going less often to Walden now because maybe they're cutting all the trees down or something. <laughs> January 29th, heard C. Allery Channing tonight. I, it was a bushel of nuts, perhaps the most original lecture I ever heard. <laughs> Strange. Uh, he's calling a lecture a bushel of nuts. <laughs> perhaps the most original lecture I ever heard, ever so unexpected not to be foretold, and so sententious that you could not look at him and take his thought at the same time. You had to give your undivided attention to the thoughts for you were not assisted by the said phrases or modes of speech intervening. There was no sloping up or down to or from his points. It was all genius, not talent. I re it required more close attention, more abstraction from surrounding circumstances than any lecture I've heard. For well, as I know, see, that is Ellery Channing, he more than any man disappoints my expectation. When I see him in the desk, hear him, I cannot realize that I ever saw him before. He will be strange, unexpected to his great acquaintance. I cannot associate the lecture with the companion of my walks. It was from so original and peculiar a point of view, yet just to himself in the main, that I doubt if the if three in the audience apprehended a tide that he said. It was so hard to hear that doubtless few made the exertion. A thick succession of mountain passes and no intermediate slopes and plains other lectures, even the best, in which so much space is given to the elaborate development of a few ideas, seem somewhat meager in comparison, yet it would be how much more glorious if talent were added to genius, if there were a just arrangement and development of the thoughts, and each step were not a leap, but he ran a step space to take a yet higher leap. January 30th. Nature allows of no universal secrets. The more carefully a secret is kept on one side of the globe, the larger the type it is printed in on the other. <laughs> is this the effect of globalization? <laughs> hmm. Globalism. The more carefully a secret is kept on one side of the globe, the larger the type it is printed in on the other. We'll put that in our quotationist philosopher blog. Uh, no, that's where that's where you just quote others and think that you're a philosopher. Uh -huh. 
Nothing is too pointed, too personal, too immodest for her to poison. The relations of sex transferred to flowers become the study of ladies in the drawing room. While men wear fig leaves, she grows the phallus impudicus and P. caninus, phallus I M P U D I C U S and P C A N I N U S, and other phallus like fungi. Hmm. January 31. One woman whom I visit sometimes thinks I am conceited and yet wonders that I do not visit her often, oftener. If I were sure she was right, perhaps I should. <laughs> One woman whom I visit sometimes thinks I am conceited. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't visit her enough. <laughs> February 1. If I have not succeeded in my friendships, it was because I demanded more of them and did not put up with what I could get, and I got no more partly because I gave so little. The recent rush to California and the attitude of the world, even of its philosophers and prophets in relation to it, appears to me to reflect the greatest disgrace on mankind, uh, that so many are ready to get their living by the lottery of gold digging without contributing any value to society, and that the great majority who stay at home justify them in this both by percept and example it matches the infatuation of the Hindus who have cast themselves under the car of Juggernaut. I know of no more startling development of the morality of trade and all the modes of getting a living than the rush to California affords. Hmm. Of what significance the philosophy or poetry or religion of a world that will rush to the lottery of California gold digging on the receipt of the first news to live by luck to get the means of commanding the labor of others less lucky, e.g. of slaveholding without contributing any value to society. What do you think we should do? Should we go to California and look for gold or get slaves and make them work? <laughs> Which is the better way? And that is called enterprise, and the devil is only a little more enterprising. The philosophy and poetry and religion of such a mankind are not worth the dust of a puffball. Hmm. The hog that roots his own living and so makes manure would be ashamed of such company. Do you think hogs are better than people? In a way... All these people. If I could command the wealth of all the worlds by lifting my finger, I would not pay such a price for it. It makes God to be a money gentleman who scatters a handful of pennies in order to see mankind scrabble for them. Going to California 
It is only 300,000 miles nearer to hell. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that you probably won't find gold. <laughs> I will resign my life sooner than live by luck. The world's a raffle. A subsistence in the domains of nature, a thing to be ra raffled for. No wonder that they gamble there. I never heard that they did anything else there. What a comment, what a satire on our institutions. I suppose it is fairly barbaric out west, right? We've seen <laughs> compared competitively. February 8th, Mrs. Butter says that she has five cents for making a shirt and that if she does her best, she can make one in a day. Hmm. You can make a shirt for five cents? Wow. Custom made, maybe. That'd be cool. Five cents. You could get a custom made shirt. February 9th, Met Sudbury Haynes on the river before the cliffs came a-fishing, wearing an old coat, much patched with many colors. He represents the Indians still. The very patches in his coat and his improvident life do so. I feel that he is as essential a part, nevertheless, of our community as the lawyer in the village. village. He tells me that he caught three pickerel here the other day that weighed seven pounds altogether. It is the old story. The fisherman is a natural storyteller. No man's imagination plays more pranks than his while he is tending his reels and trotting from one to another or watching his cork in summer. He is ever waiting for the sky to fall. He has sent out a venture. He has a ticket in the lottery of fate. And who knows what it may draw? He ever expects to catch a bigger fish yet? He is the most patient and believing of man. Who else will stand so long in wet places? When the haymaker runs to shelter, he takes down his pole and bends his steps to the river. Glad to have a leisure day. He is more like an inhabitant of nature. The con weather concerns him. He is an observer of her phenomenon. You think he may be a little better than the gold digger <laughs> or the slaveholder? I don't know. February 13th, talking with Rice this afternoon about the bees, which I discovered the other day. He told me something about his bee hunting. He and Pratt to go out together once or twice a year. He takes a little tin box with a little refined sugar and water about the consistency of honey or some honey in the comb which comes up so high only in the box as to let the lid clear a bee's back. Also some little bottles of paint, red, blue, white, etc. and a compass properly prepared to line the bees with the sights perhaps a foot apart, then they ride off. This is in the fall to some extensive wood, perhaps this west side of Sudbury. They go to some buckwheat field or a, or a particular species of late goldenrod, which especially the bees frequent at that season, and they are sure to find honeybees enough 
They catch one by putting the box under the possums and then covering him with the lid. At the same time, cutting off the stalk of the flower, they then set down the box and after a while raise the lid slightly to see if the bee is feeding. If so, they take off the lid, knowing that he will not fly away till he gets ready and catch another and so on till they get a sufficient number. Then they thrust sticks into their little paint bottles, and with these, watching their opportunity, they, they give the bees each a spot of a particular color on his body. They spot him indistinctly, and then lying about a rod off, not to scare them, and watching them carefully all the while, they wait till one has filled his sack and prepares to his uh, depart to his hive. They are careful to know whether he has a red or a blue jacket or what color. He rises up about ten feet and then begins to circle rapidly round and round with the hum, sometimes a circle twenty feet in diameter before he's decided which way to steer, then suddenly shoots off in a beeline uh -huh, to his hive. Is that what it means to beeline to your hive? Uh -huh. Have you ever beelined? He beelined. He beelined to his hive. The hunters lie flat on their backs and watch him carefully all the while. If Blue Jacket steers towards the open land where they are known to be hives, they forthwith leave out of the box all the Blue Jackets and move off a little and open the box in a new place to get rid of that family. And so they walk till they come to a bee, red jacket perhaps, that steers into the wood or swamp or in a direction to suit them. They take the point of compass exactly and wait perhaps till red jacket comes back, that they may ascertain his course more exactly and also judge by the time he has taken for him to go and return, using their watches how far off the rest nest is. Though sometimes they are disappointed in their calculations, for it may take the bee more or less time to crawl into its nest, depending on its position in the tree. By the third journey, he will commonly bring some of his companions or hunters, then move forward a piece from time to time, letting out a bee to make sure of their course. And after the bees have gone and come once, they generally steer straight to their nest at once without circling round first sometimes the hunters having observed this course carefully on the compass go round a quarter of a circle and letting out another bee observe the course from that point knowing that where these two lines intersect must be the nest rice thinks that a bee line does not vary more than fifteen or twenty feet from a straight one and going half a mile they frequently trace the bees thus to their hives more than a mile. Hmm. Wow, these are like bee hunters, <laughs> beehive hunters. He said that the last time he went out, the wind was so strong that the bees made some leeway just as a bullet will, and he could not get the exact course to their hives. 
He has a hive of bees over in Sudbury, and he, he every year sows some buckwheat for them. He has visited this buckwheat when in possum when they are more than one bee to every six inches square, and out of curiosity has caught a number of the bees and wetting them out successively has calculated hmm, calculated by the several courses they took whose hives they came from in almost every instance, though some had come more than two miles and others belonged to his own hive, hive close by. February 18th. I have a commonplace book for facts and another for poetry, but I find it difficult always to preserve the vague distinction which I had in my mind for the most interesting and beautiful facts are so much the more poetry that is in it is their success. They are translated from earth to heaven. I see that if my facts are were sufficiently vital and significant, perhaps transmuted more into the substance of the human mind. I should need but one book of poetry to contain them all. coffee. Uh, we had talked, I'm not going to read too long here, we just read January and February of, of 1852. That's quite a bit we read. Huh? Of 1852 we read in Henry David Thoreau's journals. He said you shouldn't eat fast, and he said people's bodies, minds and bodies, cease to be elastic a little too early, and that the scholars and the farmer's work is strictly analogous, and that my barnyard is my journal. And he talked about globalism, how the, the more carefully a kept secret is kept on one side of the globe, the larger the type it is printed in on the other. And he also talked about gold digging and slave owning. And then he went on to bee hunting. They learn how to find a beehive in the woods. So we learn some practical skills, not just plain philosophy. <laughs> right? Mm. This is the best of the journals of Henry David Thoreau in 1852.